1: The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, scores See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a
0: thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I bet you get 30, 30, bet you get 30, I bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. Sold!
1: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play.
1: The question as to whether or not we are alone in the universe is one that has plagued humanity for as long as we've been looking up at the night sky. Whether it be intelligent beings in a developed civilization on another planet, or the smallest microbial life living in a liquid ocean on an icy moon, irrefutable proof that life exists beyond Earth would be a cosmic game-changer. This episode, I spoke to biologist Wallace Arthur, who in his new book, The Biological Universe, estimates that the universe could be teeming with life. I got the chance to ask Wallace why he believes this is the case, and what it would mean for our species.
0: I'm Wallace Arthur. I'm Emeritus Professor of Zoology at the National University of Ireland in Galway. And I'm, by training, an evolutionary biologist, but I've got very interested in the possibility, which is probably too mild a word, uh, of extraterrestrial life and the, the possibility of evolution on planets other than Earth. And so I've recently published the book uh, called The Biological Universe. It's a Cambridge University Press book, and the subtitle is Life in the Milky Way and Beyond. And so this is uh, my attempt to combine uh, biology, which is my own uh, stomping ground, if you like, with astronomy uh, in the, uh, the pursuit that we tend to call these days astrobiology, but of course, astrobiology is a branch of science in its infancy because we as yet lack uh, the uh, evidence of extraterrestrial life, even though uh, we are pretty sure that it exists.
1: Yes, and, and that's something that um, seems to come across in, in your writing. I mean, you're, you're, you're pretty sure that the, that the universe is, is sort of, would you say, te- teeming with life, that it, it's just waiting to be discovered by, by our species?
0: Actually, I would, yes. Yes, I, uh, I think it's almost certain that there's life out there in the universe, and not just in one place, in lots of places. I'd hazard a guess that there are probably uh, billions of planets with life. It's kind of hard to believe because given that we as yet don't have the evidence uh, for it, it's hard to really feel that it's there. I mean, the way the numbers stack up, the universe is so vast, there are so many galaxies. Uh, The idea of just one tiny planet with life in a a wilderness of many millions, trillions of planets without life, it doesn't seem really believable. Uh, But it's it's hard to feel it until we actually have the evidence. And my guess is that this life... Uh, evolved, some of it evolved before us uh, because uh, the universe seems to have been habitable since probably about 13 billion years ago, whereas the Earth's only about four and a half billion years old. So probably it's been around for a long time. Um, And then the thing is right now, uh, so simultaneously uh, to what's happening here in, in the world, there are life forms, in my opinion, and countless planets scattered across this galaxy and others, uh, all the way to the edge of the observable universe, and quite probably beyond that.
1: And um, I, I, I think it's really interesting to to think about the the notion of life. And whenever you're talking about um, life, life's pretty much a high probability that it exists elsewhere in the universe. Are, are you are you talking? about intelligent life or are you are you mostly talking about sort of microbial life
0: well yeah that's that's an important distinction um, and in fact I guess I would classify life into uh, three categories uh, so microbial yes that's the, the the basic form of life at least the basic form of life that we see around us on, on planet Earth. Uh, But in between that and um, intelligent life, there's what you might call multicellular life, multicellular but unintelligent. Okay, let's put it that way. So I'm thinking in terms of animals and plants or their equivalent uh, on other planets. I mean, there was a book produced, it's now a couple of decades old, but quite a famous book called Rare Earth. And their idea was that microbial life might be very common, uh, but more complex life would be uh, exceedingly rare. Now, I happen to disagree with them. I think probably everyone reckons that uh, complex life will be less common than microbial, and intelligent life will be less common, again, than ordinary animal or plant life. But that doesn't mean that the, that the higher categories, if you like to call them that, are vanishingly rare. And so I would be surprised if, uh, for example, there are not at least a trillion intelligent civilizations in the universe right now, but that might mean that there's only one in the Milky Way galaxy whereas almost certainly our galaxy contains many, many planets with microbial life. So, there's a definite sort of pecking order in the commonness of these three types of life. If you like, the, the, the higher a level of life you're looking for, uh the less common it's likely to be. Uh but still in numbers terms, very common. So you can be you can be rare as a fraction, but still extremely common as a number, if you see what I mean, because a small fraction of a trillion planets is still a very large number.
1: I think you're um what you're talking about and um your, your, your sort of analysis of the, of the search for life it's it's very it's very optimistic um where does that uh, op- optimism come from like w- what have you kind of based
0: your your, your uh, theory on uh, I suppose part of it is just the scale of the universe uh, part of it is the concept of the habitable zone which we now know quite a lot about. And uh, having discovered now between four and 5,000 exoplanets, whereas 30 years ago we didn't know of any, we know that a fair fraction of those orbit within the habitable zone. And uh, it seems rather unlikely that only one orbiting in the habitable zone, namely the Earth, would evolve life, and the others, despite being potentially just as habitable, somehow remain with vast oceans that are entirely sterile it just doesn't quite ring true as an idea to me.
1: I think that brings us on to another concept, which is um, what what is actually needed for life to exist as we know it? And, and do you think there's a chance for life to exist outside of those those parameters?
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, life as we know it, or at least broadly similar to, to how we know it, probably needs at least three things. First of all, it needs a source of energy. Now we would expect that to be light energy, but on the other hand, it doesn't have to be life energy, sorry, light energy. Uh, for example, we have these crazy ecosystems uh, around hydrothermal vents at the bottom of uh, oceans and those are more or less light-free systems, and uh, those life forms uh, make a living out of chemosynthesis rather than photosynthesis. So we know that other forms of energy can substitute for light energy. So let's say that the first requirement for life is, is energy, probably, but not necessarily light energy. The second requirement for life as we know it is water. And I would personally say liquid water, which is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I'm skeptical of the recent uh, suggestion about life in the clouds of Venus, which of course is gaseous water. Um, So I think we need water. That's the second thing. And the third thing is we need a uh, small array of elements as building blocks. So at the very least, we need what you might call the famous five, we need carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus. We probably need smaller quantities of other elements too. So, if you've got uh, a source of energy, and you've got liquid water, and you've got those elements, I think that's uh, a good starting point. And what we know is that actually you don't even have to start on the surface of a planet constructing life from from square one, from just having the elements themselves, because we know that interesting uh, organic molecules uh, like amino acids exist in space. They exist on meteorites. They exist all over the place. So life uh, for life to start on a planet's surface, it doesn't have to go right from square one. The bits and pieces are already, uh, in a sense, lying around on the surface of the planet, but they need to be connected together. And that's probably where things get interesting and quite difficult.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, as far as I understand understand it, um, that's, that's sort of one of the theories of the emergence of life on Earth, isn't it? Uh, panspermia, the fact that uh, li- life could have begun beyond Earth and was then transferred to Earth. Do, 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 do biologists still think that that theory holds water?
0: Uh, well, panspermia, certainly not. Uh, but there's a difference between what I've just described and panspermia. So uh, the panspermia theory, which was uh, originally the uh, the brainchild of a, a Swedish chemist uh, back in the early 1900s. Uh, this proposes that actual life forms come to Earth from elsewhere. They, they, they've already evolved somewhere else. And the idea usually is that there would be some kind of hardy, resistant spores in a state of suspended animation, which when they arrive on, on planet Earth, uh, they, well, the conditions are such that they're able to reactivate themselves, reanimate themselves, if you like. Now, what I was uh, mentioning there, uh, the existence of amino acids in space, amino acids coming in in meteorites, that's not the same thing at all because that's the component uh, parts of life coming in from space or, or if you like, being already present I- in the protoplanetary disk surrounding the sun when the whole solar system was being born. Um, so, I'd say that that is inevitable, Whereas actual uh, panspermia in a strict sense of spores or some kind of microbe, some kind of actual life form coming in and surviving the interstellar journey, I'd say that's probably pie in the sky.
1: (laughs) I think it's really interesting also when you're talking about um, sort of the the inevitability of life. And um, it's one of the things I always think about when you consider... um, Earth, because obviously Earth, as we know it, is the only place that we know life to exist. So, so, so we kind of look at it as this um, um, really sort of ideal conditions for life to to emerge. But I, I think w- when you think about it even deeper, you can you can sort of say Earth might well have existed and and been in, and and had these um, amiable conditions for life, but life might not ever have have emerged. Do do, do, do you think it was inevitable that, that life would emerge on Earth, or could? Could those conditions exist without life ever actually taking hold? eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply (sighs) spring is a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments there's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices free samples, free shipping and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world
0: results. That's SAP Business AI. I think that's probably the best question of the lot, which also means it's the hardest to answer. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yes, you can imagine 100 Earths, 100 quasi-replicates of our planet, all basking in the habitable zone, all with the right elements, all with liquid water. Now, uh, given enough time, do they all end up evolving life? Or is it some real fluke event that happened just in one place, just on Earth, Uh, For example, maybe a bolt of lightning strikes some highly improbable collection of amino acids and other organic chemicals um, sitting in a little pool somewhere on the planet's surface. And if all manner of conditions hadn't been exactly as they were, uh, that bolt of lightning would never have struck. That particular assemblage of molecules and life would never have begun. Uh, you could call that, if you like, the the improbable origin of life hypothesis. I don't believe that for a minute, but on the other hand, I'd be hard put to give you an explanation of why I tend to favor the opposing hypothesis, which you could call the probable life hypothesis, which is that um, given the right conditions on, again, we could think of 100 quasi-replicates of planet Earth, I think it would evolve on all of them, given enough time. And I mean, I suppose one way to think about it is that the surface of a planet is like a mosaic of lots and lots of patches, many of which are not suitable for the origin of life, but many of which are. And all life has to do is originate on one of them, and then given life's capability of spreading, it can just go across the whole planet. So in the book, I call this the mosaic hypothesis, and I think uh, it's one way of um, picturing uh, what's happening on, on, on the uh, planet's surface in the early days when there are when they're organic molecules, and there's a possibility of evolving life. Uh, but yeah, it's a really difficult question.
1: Just um, sort of staying relatively close to home in cosmic terms, um do you do you hold that much hope for finding for, for um, our species finding life elsewhere in the solar system? I know there's like a lot of searches um, in the kind of subsurface oceans of icy moons like Enceladus and Europa. Do you do you think that those are good places to search? Do you, do you hold that much hope?
0: Well, I hate to say it, but although I'm uh, an optimist, as you've mentioned uh, in relation to extraterrestrial life in general, and and not just in general, but in our home galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, in terms of life in our solar system, including on those icy moons that you mentioned, I'm actually something of a pessimist. So there's a bit of a contrast here. Um, I suspect, I, I quite strongly suspect, that there is no life in our solar system beyond the life on Earth. However, having said that, I think it's worth looking, and if I were to look anywhere, I think it is indeed in the subsurface oceans of those two moons that you mentioned, Enceladus and Europa, that I would look. And so, um, in terms of future missions by NASA or ESA or other uh, space organizations, I'd say, if we can send a probe out there And if, in some places, the ice might be thin enough to drill through and take samples of the water that we know is underneath, well, that would be absolutely fascinating to see uh, what the results of analysis of those samples were. I still have the sneaking suspicion that it would be a negative answer, but I'd still love to see it done. Mm. Yeah, I think that's also one of the frustrating things about um, thinking
1: about life around... um life on planets orbiting other stars beyond the solar system uh, exoplanets is is that we can send probes to the bodies in our solar system but but we can't really we can't really feasibly send probes to planets orbiting other stars but what what can we actually do to to search for for um, signs of life on, on exoplanets
0: yeah yeah now we're getting to the practicalities and that's really important because that's that's how we'll find things out in the end uh, through practical missions of one sort and another. Um, there is this fascinating plan actually to physically send a spacecraft to the nearest exoplanet, the one that's orbiting the star called Proxima Centauri, which is a mere four light years away. And uh, this is the uh, the proposed project called Breakthrough Starshot, part of the, the broader breakthrough initiatives that were launched in, in 2015, I think. Um, and the idea is to have what they call nanocraft, tiny, tiny spacecraft uh, with um, light sails powered by very, very powerful lasers. And the idea is that they could maybe get up to 20% of the speed of light and they might be able to get there in uh, within a human lifetime and even send their radio messages back within that same lifetime. Now, uh, that's... Um, A fascinating proposal, uh, but I think that in uh, less than a time it takes for a mission of that kind to deliver results, we will actually find our first evidence of life on exoplanets by other means. And so the obvious question then becomes what other means and and what are we looking for? Um, And I think probably the single most important thing to look for the thing that will give us the highest probability of success is to look for biosignature gases in the atmospheres of exoplanets. And the most obvious one to look for is oxygen along with its derivative ozone. Um, And if we can detect exoplanets with reasonably high levels of oxygen in their atmospheres, it will be a very, very strong pointer towards the existence of extraterrestrial life, including extraterrestrial photosynthesizing life. Now, the trouble is, of course, exoplanets are incredibly distant, and they're all orbiting uh, stars, so they're all orbiting what are for them their own local suns. And those suns are ridiculously... Uh, bright compared with the planets orbiting them. Now, we want to look at the planet, and in particular, we want to look at its atmosphere. We don't want to be drowned in sunlight coming from the system concerned. And that's been quite a problem up until now. Uh, I mean, it's it's not been an insurmountable problem because we've had data on exoplanet atmospheres coming in since about the year 2002, I think, somewhere somewhere about then, uh, give or take. However, our ability to look for these biosignature gases in exoplanet atmospheres will be greatly enhanced by the next generation of space telescopes, which are now at a rather advanced stage of planning. Uh, So, for example, uh, one of these planned space projects is called HABEX. It's simply uh, a shortened version of habitable exoplanets satellite. And uh, this is a NASA proposal which will probably either get the go-ahead or the thumbs down early next year. So we're talking about a decision uh, quite soon. It's been in the planning for probably a decade. Um, this and others uh, others uh, of the same next generation of space telescopes, others like it. There's another one called LUVOIR. Um, they operate on a different principle to the space telescopes we've had up there until now. So, for example, uh, the Kepler Space Telescope has been our most successful exoplanet hunting uh, device to date. And we also now have the TESS uh, replacement of Kepler up there. But the new uh, space telescopes are designed uh, in a different way, and they're designed very cleverly to block out the starlight, and look directly at the planet. Now, that's great because uh, you're not talking about the planet's own light being drowned in in light coming from a nearby star. But on the other hand, it carries with it its own difficulties because, of course, planets uh, are not sources of visible light. They are, however, sources of infrared radiation and that's actually what we're going to be concentrating on. So, these uh, new space telescopes will be able to uh, conduct uh, spectrographic analyses across from the visible spectrum, right through a lot of the infrared, and they'll be able to detect uh, the tell-tale uh, bands which are uh, caused by the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere. Once these uh, new generation space telescopes get up and running, even one of them, for example, I mean, there's there's several on the drawing boards, but even if one of them gets up and running, uh, then I think it's going to be uh, a relatively short time in terms of a relatively short number of years uh, until we detect uh, an exoplanet with a high level of oxygen. And that's going to be the most exciting exoplanet finding yet, uh, on top of a lot which were in themselves exciting. I mean, you can say, okay, the first Proper exoplanet was probably 1995. The first Earth like exoplanet, the one called Kepler 186F, was found uh, in 2014, if I'm remembering correctly. The next big first will be the first one with an atmosphere that suggests the presence of life. And I'm really looking forward to that, but I hope it happens reasonably soon. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I think it's it's really interesting looking back on the past, say, you know, three decades of, of exoplanet searches, because in the in the early 90s, it was really just sort of, it started off as like one or two exoplanets were discovered, and then it sort of, it was like the floodgates opened, and, and now we know of thousands, and we can study them, and we can kind of confidently say that it, every star you see in the night sky probably has an exoplanet in orbit around it. Do you, do you think it might be the same for the the first you know, the, the discovery of, of life? Um, once we find one exoplanet with life on it, we then get better, and before we know it, we know of hundreds.
0: I suspect that will happen. I don't know how long it will take for that to happen um, if you if, if you want to think in terms of what we might expect to find in terms of planets with life. Among the exoplanets we know so far, then uh, let's just go f- through a few numbers. We we know of between four and five thousand exoplanets. If uh, there is, let's say, microbial life on I don't know, um, maybe uh, one in a thousand, then there's probably microbial life on four or five of the exoplanets that we've discovered so far. Now, given that. Animal life and then intelligent life will be rarer again. I would say that this sample of exoplanets that we have discovered to date is probably not large enough to give us f- yet our first planet with uh, complex or intelligent life. But I think we'd be very unlucky if among those four or five thousand planets there's not at least one or two uh, with microbes. So I would have thought that discovering our first exoplanet with uh, microbes is uh, possible uh, from a practical point of view, as soon as we get uh, the right kind of telescope up there looking for it. But discovering hundreds more replicates of that, we need to have a lot more exoplanet discoveries in general under our belt uh, simply because of the the small fraction of them that are likely to have even just microbial life. It all comes back to this issue of big numbers versus small fractions. And so, uh, you know, uh, once we've got, instead of four or five thousand planets, four or five hundred thousand planets, uh and there'll be far more than that in in the milky way uh then we'll be talking about multiple findings of of extraterrestrial life i think and even hopefully some which are not just microbes but which are uh, more interesting kinds of uh and, and more complex organisms including maybe our first intelligent life
1: i was really interested to hear about your your sort of um cautious skepticism regarding the uh the phosphine um in the clouds of venus because I think that um, also says a lot for the, the search for um, biosignatures and exoplanets, doesn't it? I mean, even when we find a biomarker in the atmosphere of our, ne- our next-door planet, it's still not clear what that means. So it, it becomes even more difficult, doesn't it, when you're looking at something that's, you know, tens to hundreds of light-years away?
0: It does become more difficult just because of the distance here, and you're quite right. However, it also potentially becomes easier. And let me me explain what I mean by that, because at first it seems a bit paradoxical. But the thing is that if there's photosynthetic life on a, a distant exoplanet, it's quite possible that the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere could be similar to what it is here, 20%, or Uh, For example, it could be similar to what it was on Earth a billion or two billion years ago, which was a few percent, not as high as 20, but still a significant amount. The thing is that the finding of phosphine on Venus is nothing like that. We're not talking a percent at all or even a tenth of a percent or a hundredth of a percent. We're talking way, way, way less than one part per billion Oh, sorry, one part per million. I think it was a few parts per billion of the the Venusian atmosphere consisting of this gas called phosphine. So it is vanishingly rare. So uh, I think that makes it a lot more difficult to interpret than it would be if you're trying to interpret a level of 10% or 20% oxygen in a planetary atmosphere. So uh, I think that um, phosphine is a tricky one. It's also tricky because uh, we know that phosphine exists in other planetary atmospheres. For example, we know that it exists in the atmosphere of Jupiter. We've known that for some time. The difficulty about the discovery of um, phosphine on Venus is that the atmosphere of Venus is such that uh, it has no right to be there, if you like. It's a, it's an oxidizing atmosphere. We might expect there to be phosphates rather than phosphine. So, as the authors of that particular study um, rightly said, there are two possible explanations of this, uh, that is, of the existence of, of these trace quantities that shouldn't be there. One is life, okay, so microbes floating in the in the clouds of Venus. But the other one is some unknown chemical process, something that we just aren't aware of yet, some way in which phosphine can be made in small quantities by a completely non-biological chemical process, even in uh, the kind of atmosphere that Venus possesses, the so-called reducing atmosphere. So uh, my money would be on that latter possibility. Um, I think proposing a whole evolutionary process over billions of years to produce cloud based microbes that can synthesize tiny quantities of phosphine to me it's not a terribly plausible hypothesis
1: um I, I suppose the, the the sort of um the likelihood and and all the probability and, and the science behind it um, you could really discuss and kind of go back and forth um, all day really but I, I suppose it's just interesting what, what Considering if we did actually find life, be it intelligent life or microbial life, what what, what do you think are the actual implications for our species? Um, I suppose both from a scientific perspective but maybe also from a from a philosophical perspective
0: Yeah, well, um, I'm tempted to reply with uh, how long have you got?" Um, but uh, okay, I'm sure I can give a short version. I mean obviously the most uh, the greatest impact both scientifically and philosophically, would come from discovery of uh, intelligent life. And that's something that's probably more likely to come through transmission of radio signals than through uh, analysis of exoplanet atmospheres, as as we've been discussing up till now. Um, I think scientifically, if we discovered extraterrestrial uh, intelligent life, One thing that would fascinate me would be the possibility of speeding up our scientific understanding of the universe. At the moment, we're absolutely stuck on certain key issues. Uh, For example, I could mention uh, the notorious dark matter and dark energy, completely different from each other, completely inscrutable in both cases. Um, I would love to hear what a more advanced civilization has made of such things. I think uh, uh, we would have much to learn. Now, of course, you could argue that if the intelligent Uh, extraterrestrials are not friendly we might also have much to fear Uh, so there's that side of it too but um, with a bit of luck they might be uh, keener on uh, education than on hostilities especially given the distances involved which means communication works okay but physical visits and taking over uh, our planet is probably not going to actually work in practice. Um, so, yeah, so from a scientific point of view, I would just love to see our own scientific uh, knowledge enhanced, uh, perhaps exponentially, uh, in a way that could take centuries uh, to, to achieve uh, without such help. Now, you might say that's cheating, but I don't know about that. I think learning from others is, is something that we do, and why not learn from uh, um, extraterrestrial others as well as terrestrial ones? So, I mean, yes, uh, but the broader part of your question is philosophically. Um, And I think there the the issue is, uh, it's kind of what we were discussing at the very beginning. The numbers uh, and the scale of the universe are such that it's almost impossible to imagine that there isn't life out there, including intelligent life, even though it's rarer than uh, microbial life but actually feeling that we're not alone, as opposed to saying, well, the numbers almost dictate that we're not alone. Feeling that we're not alone is harder to do uh, without some sort of evidence. We do like to see evidence before we really uh, believe in something, especially uh, from a scientific perspective, and that's just as it should be. So I think... Uh, the impact on our our mindset of actually feeling that there's somebody else out there, as opposed to just knowing that it's logically almost necessary, that would really be quite different. And that would have spin-offs in all sorts of directions. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I've given talks on this subject at various uh, astronomical observatories, and uh, you get very interesting groups of people uh, attending such uh, uh, observatory events. and i've've one thing I've noticed is that um, people who are, let's say, conventionally religious, seem to be uh, less likely to accept the possibility of intelligent extraterrestrial life than other people. So I don't know whether that means it would also have uh, some sort of religious significance as well as more general philosophical significance. It's an area I tend as a scientist to s- dear clear of, uh, because it's not really amenable to scientific analysis. But I suspect that it would ho- have all manner of philosophical implications. Uh, but for me, uh, the, the single most important thing would be to replace the, the, the rather abstract, logical, you know, we can't really be on our own here with the, the actual feeling, you know, we've just communicated with an alien intelligence. That would be just phenomenal.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, indeed. It's a, it's a mind-blowing thing to to, to consider. Um, well, uh, Wallace, I just want to say th- thanks very much for speaking to me today and uh, good, luck for, good luck with the book as well. It was, it was great speaking to you and getting your, your thoughts on this, uh, I suppose, subject that we'll be debating and analysing
0: for decades to come. Well, thank you very much, Ian. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify.